All right, we're running out of time as usual. And so in our last segment, let's just blow through some mostly technologic stuff. But I want to start up with a follow-up to something we mentioned a couple weeks ago, which was that uh, there's a thought out there that the grain that uh, societies have been organized around may have a lot to do with the nature of, of those societies. Noted the May 17th New Scientist, it's a cliche to say that East Asians think in terms of a group, while Westerners think in terms of the individual, but there is truth to it, and the explanation may lie in what our ancestors ate. As we talked about previously, it's thought that rice farming may have fostered collective thinking, while wheat farms favored individualism. To grow rice, many people must work together on irrigated canals, but a lone family can grow wheat. So Thomas Talheim at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville wondered if staple crops affect thinking. So his team tested the cognitive styles, individualism, and in-group loyalty of students in China. This depended on whether they were from wheat or rice-growing areas, and they found many differences. Like when students drew their relationship to others, those from wheat-growing areas grew themselves larger than others, but students from rice-growing areas did not. When asked to group things, people from rice-growing areas grouped them by relationship rather than by physical similarities. Said Talheim, rice provides economic incentives to cooperate, so people in those cultures become more dependent on each other. Makes sense to me. And of course, another cliche is that how you, one thinks about things affects one's language and vice versa. So I want to thank Stephen for posting 10 fabulous German words with no English equivalent. Not going to do all of them, but four of these are at least are pretty good. The Germans have a word, Kummerspeck, a noun, which is the excess weight gained from emotional overeating. And there's Tors Schusspanik, which is the fear, usually as one gets older, that time is running out and important opportunities are slipping away. We need to, we need to steal these from German, I think. Weltschmerz, it's a good one. It's the mental depression or apathy caused by comparison of the actual state of the world with an ideal state. Yes, Radio Parallax does occasionally suffer from Weltschmerz. But far and away, my favorite, and this one's a tough one to pronounce, the best I can do is Backpfeifengeschicht, which is a face that cries out for a fist in it. The person that put this piece out said, rather than try to explain what that means, I'll, I'll provide a list of people that might possess a face that's just asking to be punched. Like teenagers who complain about terrible Christmas gifts they got. Like cars. And uh, whoever started the selfie trend. And people who eat hamburgers with a knife and fork. I'm not sure they deserve a fist in the face for that. But uh, people who tattoo their significant others' names across their face, or for that matter, anywhere... Well, that one's open to debate. And let's talk technology, for good or worse. Uh, apparently, we, this heartbleed bug we mentioned a few weeks back on the program prompted some folks over at NPR.org to say, all this means is that now it's a good time to review your internet hygiene. It was recommended that you be leery of public Wi-Fi networks and whenever possible use a virtual private network or VPN. It also repeats the old advice that you should remember to use different passwords for different websites and change them every few months, which, frankly, I get in trouble every time I try. I have to go back and remember. Now, for this site, the password was what? So what do we wind up doing? Writing them down. So much for our paper-free future. 
And what about this idea that uh, over in Europe, a top court has ruled that Google must delete information from its search results in certain scenarios? They're calling this the right to be forgotten. This decision arose after a man requested the removal of links, mentioning that a house he owned years ago was being auctioned because he failed to pay his taxes. Apparently over in Europe, requests to remove embarrassing and negative links are already pouring in to Google. Within days of that decision, a former politician seeking re-election asked to have links to articles about his poor behavior while in office removed. So did a man convicted of possessing images of child abuse and a doctor looking to erase negative online reviews. Kind of of a mixed mind about this. You know, I've got friends on Facebook that are now deceased and they're still on Facebook. They're still my friends. Isn't, isn't there some way we should go in there and like update reality when it needs to be updated? Writing in the Financial Times, a man named John Gapper said this is a terrible ruling. Before long, people's search results will resemble official biographies, recording only the facts they want other people to know. He said that's not only wrong, it's dangerous. Case in point, I recently considered buying a house from a developer until I googled him and discovered he'd been convicted of fraud a decade earlier. Under last week's ruling, he can now argue that his crime was a youthful mistake and have his record purged. Useful for him, but not for those signing contracts in ignorance. Jonathan Zetain in the New York Times said that thanks to the First Amendment, such censorship would probably never fly here in the U.S. I have a hard time buying that as a First Amendment issue, but maybe. He said Americans should still be wary of this flawed ruling. Not only does it fail to spell out how search engines should decide which requests to honor, it doesn't require that embarrassing material, revealing photographs, court documents, tawdry gossip, be erased from the Internet just from search results. We need a knowledgeable person about the web to come on and talk. We've needed that for a while, but we'll see what we can do. The technology section of New Scientist noted a strange thing uh, in the last issue. Shortly after a powerful tornado struck Arkansas, back on the 27th of April, storm chaser Brian Emfinger flew a drone over the ravaged town, capturing dramatic aerial images of the swath of wreckage. The footage aired on local TV and quickly went viral online, but it also caught the eye of the FAA, which launched an investigation the next day. Noted the magazine, M. Finger and others like him could be forgiven for failing to anticipate the agency's ire, although he is one of thousands of drone owners in the U.S., which, with most craft being the small quadrocopter variety, there are no official regulations on how to operate them in the United States. Even the current ban against flying them for commercial purposes which M. Finger flouted, comes from a 2007 policy statement, not law. Under a congressional order, the FAA must open national airspace to commercial and civilian drones by the end of 2015, which, frankly, I find to be a terrifying prospect. The idea of flying around in a Cessna and perhaps having to dodge a drone? <laughs> oh, man. But, uh... The worry of that pales into insignificance compared with this one. Apparently, the UN discussed the ethics of autonomous killer robots for the first time earlier this month. Apparently, former military commanders, researchers, and roboticists met at a UN convention in uh, Geneva to talk about recent advances in lethal autonomous weapons. Topics included the ethical questions they raise, <laughs> well, that's nice, and what laws they affect. New scientists note that this threat isn't hypothetical. Russia has equipped missile bases with armed robots that in, can engage intruders autonomously. Well, it's not like, you know, computer chips or, you know, computers or software ever fail. 
I think when Isaac Asimov first wrote about robots, uh, one of the rules was that they couldn't harm a human being. Well, wish they'd follow Isaac's lead on that one. By the way, 50 years ago, back in 1964, when they had a World's Fair in Queens, Isaac Asimov uh, sat down and typed up an article predicting what the world would be like in 2014. Asimov did pretty well. Among his many prognostications were the elements of electric coffee makers, microwave ovens, cell phones, Skype, driverless cars, and artificial meat. We consider it one of the great tragedies of this program that uh, Isaac Asimov uh, passed away long before we were on the air. We'd have loved to have interviewed him. A robot that was more Asimovian, you might say, uh, was written about in Smithsonian in the current issue, referring, of course, to R2-D2, the most beloved robot in the galaxy. The piece did note that... uh, when you try and explore what's the secret of the appeal of R2-D2, you have to wrap your mind around the theory called the Uncanny Valley. It was first posed in 1970 by the Japanese roboticist Masahiro Mori. He noticed that as robots grew more realistic, people's attitudes toward them changed. When the robot's toy-like and capable of only simple human-like gestures, we find it cute. If it starts looking and acting a bit more human, we find it even more endearing. But when it gets too human, as with, say, a rubbery prosthetic hand, we suddenly shift allegiance. We find it creepy. Our emotional response plunges into what Maury called the uncanny valley. Maury saw a way out of this conundrum. The most engaging robot would be one that suggested human behavior but didn't try to perfectly emulate it. Our imagination would do the rest, endowing it with a personality that we could relate to. In essence, Maury perfectly predicted the appeal of R2-D2. Piece quoted Angela Tinwell, who is a professor specializing in video game design at the University of Bolton in Britain, as saying that R2-D2 was really charming. Any human-like traits you could perceive in him made us like him more. When the robot whistled and beeped rejoinders to its friend, the neurotic droid C-3PO, audiences thought, oh, I can relate. He has a sense of humor. Piece notes that director George Lucas was so enamored of the robot that he insisted it should save the day once in every movie as in The Empire Strikes Back when R2-D2 fixes the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive engine moments before being caught in the tractor beam of the Imperial Star Destroyer. Peace also notes that R2-D2's voice avoided the uncanny valley because it wasn't a voice at all but beeps and bloops created by sound designer Ben Burt, who used an audio synthesizer. And yes, I'm very sorry to have to admit that I talked to Ben Burt several years ago and we promised to bring him on the show. I have not done so. But redemption is still possible. I think Mr. Burt might be reachable, and we'll see what we can do. It'd be a great pleasure to talk to him about what he did with R2-D2. All right, final item of the show is so screwy that I just don't know what to make of it, but here it is. Talking about technology gone mad, an Iowa State University professor has developed a virtual reality headset for chickens that will apparently fool factory-farmed hens into thinking they're free-range. The gadget uses a special headset that lets caged chickens pat around a virtual farmyard pecking at virtual bugs. Said inventor Austin Stewart, I did a lot of work to get the technology right. He admits that the device's $40,000 per chicken price tag might scare off many farmers, but notes the cost would be offset by losing fewer birds to stress. And apparently he argues you'd be harvesting a significantly higher number of chickens. 
You know, since I closed with this instead of the R2-D2 story, we can't really go out with the Star Wars theme for bumper music, but I, I think we have a compromise. I'm sure we could find something from Star Wars where a chicken wearing a headset might be appropriate. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, and we want to thank our old pal Will Durst for his always amusing contributions. Oh, and our closing item might be that apparently day after tomorrow they're going to have another initiation ceremony at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm not sure we can bag on Cat Stevens, the E Street Band, Linda Ronstadt, or Peter Gabriel being admitted, but Hall and & Oates and Kiss? And we think they belong in an extraterrestrial bar next to a chicken with a headset. We don't advise you to tune in. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.